and welcome to episode 122 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we dive into Team Hendrick and pit strategy going forward in the playoffs. Will the only challenge toward a title come from within? We'll try to answer that. That plus our big Talladega preview as the Cup Series hits race two of round two in the playoffs. But first, as always, we take we start with a look back, this time at the 2001 Talladega 500 won by Bobby Hamilton. David, some notable things that pop out immediately about this race. This was the first restrictor plate race since the death of Dale Earnhardt in February of that year. This was the era of DEI, Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, dominating at the plate tracks. Dale Jr. led 33 laps this day in Talladega, second only to Sterling Marlin, who led 51. But it was Bobby Hamilton who would be get the win and get his final career win, leading the final two laps. But I know the number you want to talk about, David, is zero. Because, David, there were zero cautions that day at Talladega. Yes, 500 miles, 188 laps, done in two hours and 43 minutes. How did that happen? <laughs> uh, you know what? In the in the annals of Talladega history, this race sort of gets lost for a few reasons. Bobby Hamilton isn't a sexy name and isn't a, it is a popular race winner. But on top of that, chronologically, his win was sandwiched between Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s final ever win in the fall of 2000 and the fall Talladega race in 01, which launched Dale Jr.'s four-race win streak uh, at that track. But make no mistake, this was an exceptional race. The setting, as you mentioned, first drafting track race since Dale Sr. was killed in Daytona. And that morning's driver's meeting was unusually tense. Mike Helton implored the drivers to not do anything reckless. And Michael Waldrop stood up and gave a speech kind of saying the same thing, uh, essentially saying that, you know, if you have my back, I have yours. And they proceeded to have that caution-free 500-mile race that you mentioned, which at Talladega is a blue moon occurrence, to be sure. But it didn't lack for action. This was a phenomenal race. Uh, the large pack remained intact for pretty much the entirety of the 188 laps. There were 37 lead changes. There were 26 different leaders. And the winner, Bobby Hamilton, was methodical, we'll say, in his approach to this race while also doing something perceived as aggressive. This was his first season driving for Andy Petrie Racing. And Alan, you alluded to the DEI dominance. The Petrie team enjoyed a technical alliance with huh. DEI and before Richard that was Childress a, Racing. Before that was a cool term, if you will. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very much. They actually called it RAD, R-A-D, uh, as, a, as an acronym. The, the cars that Petrie had that they were bringing to, uh, to Daytona and Talladega were unsurprisingly top-notch as part of this alliance. 
And in the prior Talladega race, uh, you'll remember your buddy, Kenny Wallace, finished second to Dale Sr. in this very number 55 car for Andy Petrie Racing. And Hamilton, of course, recognized how good Kenny Wallace was at Talladega, but he wasn't too interested in Wallace's race setup. He was interested in the qualifying setup he had. Wallace qualified seventh for that prior race. Joe Nemechek, also a driver for Andy Petrie Racing, won the pole for that prior race. And more to the point, Hamilton wanted to use that qualifying setup for the race. That is very aggressive. Hmm. But crew chief Jimmy Elledge obliged, and Hamilton had the feel and the speed that he wanted from his car. During the race, he bided his time. He ran in the back of the field for spurts, and then he worked his way to the front by riding a top groove outside line, but he placed two left side tires uh, in a manner in which it it infringed on the line to his inside. If you go back and watch this race, you'll see it. He was scrubbing speed off of the cars next to him. So that slowed that line down while he was leading the outside and it worked. He passed Tony Stewart with two laps to go and he won the race. His victory lane interview He just sat down next to his car. He was exhausted uh, mentally, physically. uh, Again, this was the spring race, so very hot day. No cautions, which means no breaks. uh, Stressful in that this was the first super speedway race since Dale's passing. And there's probably some relief involved because as much as Talladega is viewed as the world's largest roulette wheel, Bobby Hamilton had a plan. He knew what he wanted to do. He designed the plan around it. He executed and it proved successful. And it's a good reminder that Talladega can absolutely be one with your brain as he proved 20 years ago. Good stuff. And just uh, the long history of Talladega, a race that stands out for for different reason, as you said, with no cautions. And uh, as you called it, a blue moon occurrence, but one that will never happen again, at least for the foreseeable future, especially with stages. So a caution-free race, something uh, we won't see for some time, David. No, and uh, that's interesting. Sometimes you just want to see how a race breaks and how drivers react to this. And given what we saw after the race, again, he just just gets in victory lane and it isn't really a celebration. It's just sit down, take a load off. It's a relief. Um, That was the amount of mental and physical pressure, the toll that was taken that day to pull that race off. That was a contest of of both uh, athletic endurance and uh, mental wherewithal. I mean, given what we see at the drafting tracks, the, it, it has been referred to as high speed chess. Well, imagine that with just zero breaks, <laughs> no, no, um, no taking a load off during the race whatsoever. And that's what we saw. It is amazing that they pulled that race off with no cautions being as aggressive as they seemingly were. I implore our listeners to go back and watch that race because there was some good stuff happening in that race. It was not at all um, an inactive race uh, given the lack of cautions. Fun stuff. Always fun to look back, uh, hit up the YouTube and go back and look at the 2001 spring race from Talladega. That starts episode 122 of Positive Regression. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. 
With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, David, let's dive in because we're generally not the podcast to look back and hot take or nitpick too much right at a certain race, but we're going to take some time here to look back at Las Vegas and the decisions the Hendrick cars made because I think doing so can give us a better understanding of A, what happened, and maybe a better understanding of going forward the the pit calls and decisions that will be made in the near future because we are going back to some 550 tracks uh, on the way to toward a championship in Phoenix. So maybe looking back at Las Vegas and the decisions that were made uh, can can you know give us some idea of what they will do in the future. Maybe make some fixes. So let's go back to early on in stage two of the race, David. Sunday night, early on in stage two, the caution comes out for Joey Gase. There's a decision to be made, right, for all the teams when the caution comes out. You can pit then and hopefully make it the rest of the stage without pitting again. Something of a gamble, I guess, when it came to fuel mileage. Or you can stay out on what were fairly fresh tires, keep your track position, and pit at what you hope will be another caution some point in stage two, right? If it works out, if you stay out early and it works out later that you get another caution— Maybe everybody behind you just comes down pit road again later in the stage and you've lost nothing, right? You've kept your track position the entire time. Everyone's going to pit anyway. So you've saved a set of tires, the whole deal. But David, the extra caution never came, meaning the Hendrick cars that decided to stay out, the four Hendrick cars, had to pit under green at some point in stage two. The rest of the field never had to pit again in stage two, so HMS took itself out of a winning situation. Let's evaluate that, the the initial decision not to pit early on in stage two. I don't know when it hit you, David, or if you saw how it played out. What were your initial thoughts when when it was the 400 cars that stood out for not coming to pit road? I don't know that I hesitated initially, and... Uh, I'll explain why, because there was a realization that occurred during that caution. But the stage length for the Vegas race uh, was 80 laps, and and really it's 72 when it actually goes green. The fuel window was around 60 laps, and the Joey Gase crash occurred five laps into the run. The caution's out at that point. Most teams would assume the caution period would last about for uh, maybe five laps. So the thinking is pit now and it's 67 or 68 laps to the stage finish. The rule of thumb 
on fuel is that two laps under yellow equals one under green, just in regards to fuel consumption. So laps under yellow extends the number of laps they can actually turn. Here, teams that pitted were still figuring that they would have to make it work maybe conserve somewhere, maybe hope another caution does come out. And then that really opens things up. They can stay out because the tire wear, the degradation was maybe 0.8 seconds. So you can stay out there on old tires as long as your car's handling well and, and make it work and they can keep their track position. But they would have had to have conserved a little somewhere if that yellow hadn't come. But you, you can see how this decision would have been a toss up. And Hendrick, especially with William Byron, he just took the lead right before that caution. He had track position. As I said, the tire wear was minimal, so they did stay out. But then NASCAR extended the length of the caution for two more laps, and it was a six-lap caution. Uh, After the fact, Cliff Daniels, uh, crew chief for Kyle Larson, said that they thought it would be a normal caution length, not necessarily a quickie yellow because... Joey case crashed pretty hard. There was a lot of damage, but one of the service trucks on the track stalled and that had to be tended to. So that extended the caution enough to allow everyone that pitted some comfort in making it to the finish on this tank of fuel. And at that point, that that's when the realization hits of, oh, then they've, they've put themselves in a box. Hendrick's teams and Ryan Blaney's team, their bet was already made. So the ensuing run the i mean really the rest of the stage then became not about stage points but about damage control yeah and the damage control it was even interesting how they dealt with that because the hendrick organization split its strategy if you will two teams did one thing two teams did another after hms made that call at the gase caution uh the organization kind of split how it was going to fix it right the nine and 48 pitted at lap 131. That put them back on the track with fresh tires and essentially some time to use them, right? To to make up and and use the fresh tires that are under their car. But Larson and Byron, they almost went basically the full fuel run and they didn't pit until another 22 laps later. So again, these are the four cars in the organization. They've all decided to stay out when the Joey Gase caution happened. But two of the Hendrick cars pit Not too long afterward, I don't know if they realized what had happened or what was going to happen, but two of the Hendrick cars did something different and waited another 20 plus laps to come down pit road. What do you make of that, David, that within the organization, the strategy to kind of fix the problem was split down the middle? For what we will call the Larson path, uh, that that was a bet on a caution, what what those two teams did, period. Uh, Those bets don't yield much in the modern day cup series. You were grilling me during this race. How, how rare is that that you actually hit on a caution? Well, it's, it's pretty rare, right? I mean, especially considering that lately in the last few years, the cup series has weaned out some of these crashers. There is no Trevor Bain. There is no Rican Smith. You're not getting a guaranteed caution these days when you need it. This is a relatively clean series right now. And as we've discussed, the caution volumes are low this year. So in terms of what the series is typically giving you, this uh, bet on a caution is too high of a risk for the reward of salvaging what 
little you have. But I I did like the Chase Elliott pathway <laughs> that what what the nine team uh, uh, did and those two teams did because at that point you have to stop and admit you've blown the call. Mm. Uh, you you have track position, so that's something. So pit as soon as you can, get some new tires, and then rely on your speed and those tires for whatever they're worth because, again, the, the degradation wasn't very high. And just go to work on finishing the stage on the lead lap. And uh, and, and Chase Elliott did a better job of that than uh, any of the other three. Yeah. And again, why we're doing this is to uh, maybe it gives us some insight or raises some questions worth asking and answering, David, about uh, the, the crew chiefs who, who can admit or can cut bait early. Uh, I don't know if you can tell us what kind of strategist Cliff Daniels has been this season or, or what it can tell us going forward, because we still have to go to Kansas, still have to go to uh, Texas. And uh, I don't know how much there is to read into this or what they will learn. But again, if it's going to come from, if there's going to be a weakness with any of the Hendrick cars, I feel like it's going to come from within because they are fast, right? They do have championship level winning drivers. Uh, there, there aren't many weaknesses there. So if something's going to go wrong, it, it may be a scenario like this where you shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. And, and I think it's because of those drivers. Like, I guess the the prevailing theory is that if you are running out front, you tend to be more conservative with your pit calls. But I would actually argue if you have a driver like Kyle Larson and this kind of speed, you can take some considerable risk with your calls because that's usually a pretty good safety net. It certainly was with the nine team with Chase Elliott because it boiled down to, at least for Elliott, the speed and the passing efficiency he puts both of those things to use exceptionally well. And we talked about pass efficiency a few weeks ago. Here was that discussion embodied by Elliott and the nine car. Ha- having fresher tires helps, but you saw what traffic did at Las Vegas. You saw what lap traffic did. Kyle Bush hit the wall trying to get around lap traffic, and he was clearly faster. That's not easy. So having drivers like Chase Elliott, like Kyle Larson, allows you to do some things or make a make a, a pretty big mistake like this was and be okay. They they were able to rebound because of what they have. If you have a driver able to negotiate, you know, all of the different lines and all the different styles because not one car was the same and Elliot can't just go on autopilot. That wasn't easy, right? And on top of that, after uh he got back on the lead lap, he got on the same pit sequence and passed up to second and was closing in on the lead. And not every every driver can do what he did. Uh for him, it was a brilliant drive, but brilliance is the norm for Chase Elliott. And in regards to Kyle Larson, yeah, usually it, it would work out, um, but it, it was almost as if Cliff Daniels, who has been good this year, uh, I, I would actually argue that this has been a burgeoning strength of theirs, green flag pit cycles. He almost doubled down mm. on the mistake. He put a risk on top of a risk, and that uh, that was sort of the beginning of the end. Larson still mustered a, a 10th place finish. But as we know, based on what we expect of him, based on his stats, based on his speed, we anticipated far more going into this race. And uh, to that end, they underachieved in a playoff race. 
Yeah, and we expected a lot from all the Hendrick cars, right? As you said, Byron had just driven, started from the back due to inspection issues, had driven to the front, uh, and Bowman certainly had his moments. It wasn't lacking a ton of speed or, or wasn't performing poorly, but on top of the, the pit road calls, both Bowman and Byron found themselves with other issues, flat tires, pit road issues, on top of everything else that was going on, and they still find themselves... Uh, below the cut line at the moment. So two Hendrick cars that should have had much better nights at Las Vegas still find themselves below the cut line with Talladega and the Roval upcoming. Now we know about Hendrick's speed, kind of at both of these tracks, right? We have talked about uh, Byron's speed all year at uh, at road courses. Uh, we certainly know about the Hendrick speed at the drafting track. So how can these two, the 48 and the 24, redeem themselves in the two races coming up? Oh, golly. Stage points. Uh, because really as, really as many points as possible. But given what these two tracks, Talladega and the Roval, offer and how some teams might askew stage finishes in the name of mitigating risk, some of these stage points that we're about to see over the next two weeks could be low-hanging fruit. And both of these guys really need them because at least – Five teams will advance to the round of eight without winning a race in this round. So that is the likely pathway. Fortunately for them both, and and I wrote about this last week for NBC, Hendrick Motorsports is well suited for this entire round in terms of the speed it produces. And that includes Talladega. Bowman has the fastest car this season on drafting tracks. Uh, and the Roval, uh, Hendrick Motorsports' road racing acumen precedes them. So it still should be a rosy two weeks. It, it just boils down to how those two teams specifically execute and whether they're able to pad points. I, I think they really need to focus on stages. Okay. And then, then unfortunately, this is around, you know, we talked about the, the drivers who excel at the 750 tracks and what they were able to do in round one. As you said, this is a round that uh, tease itself up for Hendrick speed. It's just a matter of what they do with it and the decisions that get made on pit road. Uh, I think ultimately, you know, not again, not to get too talk radio on this, David, but we have to, dis- we have to, time will only tell if, if the decisions made in Las Vegas are learned from, if they were uh, a pressure deal and a mistake made, or if, if that was the exception and going forward, uh, the better decisions are made, what we've come to expect out of the Hendrick crew chiefs. It was a bad moment, uh, and I think all the the crew chiefs were um, pretty ready to admit. I mean, Cliff Daniels said that yeah. everybody blew the call, right? Um, so I think they're aware of it. it. It's rare for Hendrick to do this, to to find themselves on the same pit strategy as Todd Gordon. It, it, that's, <laughs> you know, we, we <laughs> joke that that's probably not what you would have expected uh, from Hendrick, certainly. For two of their team, I mean, really, for for Bowman and Byron, this this could be the thing that negatively affects their playoff run. They're far better than the finishes they showed. I mean, it's especially brutal for William Byron. He passed for the lead before, just before the caution that sent his night into an utter tailspin. Uh, and and that is going to be a really tough pill to swallow because as much speed as they have at, at Talladega, uh, and as good as they are on the Roval, 
they're still in a hole and it's it's going to be pretty volatile across the board for all of these playoff teams. They're going to have to fend with a lot and now they're doing so from a deficit. So it is going to be a tough two weeks uh, to see how they pull it off. This was not what was anticipated because you're right. They, they had everything. They, even Alex Bowman's team, you know, they, well, I think they knocked the valve stem off. I mean, before mm. that they weren't, they weren't bad. They weren't great, but they were maintaining. And really, if you, if you maintain, I mean, Kyle Bush spoke to this, if you can just maintain uh, through three races, you're getting through to the next round because that's how sizable of a chunk Talladega uh, and at times the Roval can take out of you, but they let that happen to them at Las Vegas and it's a self-inflicted wound that might grow worse by the, by the week. Good stuff. Good discussion. I love that we covered all from uh, driving ability to speed to pit call decisions because it all matters. We'll see how much it matters going forward. All right, so let's get to it. The big Talladega race preview. It's always, uh, I love Talladega. It's probably the most, I tell people, it's the most NASCAR place in all of NASCAR. I encourage everyone to go there and see a race just because I, I, like, I love drafting tracks and uh, Talladega just has such a, a charm of its own, David. So the big question is, how does one survive and get out of there with a clean race at Talladega? Uh, you know, we'll throw all the cliches out, I'm sure, about the the chess game and how it's so random and all this stuff, but drafting tracks are not that random. That's why the same drivers seem to be at the front of the field doing well. It is absolutely a skill to race and be good at a track like Talladega, but how does one make it through? Why are some of these drivers so good at it? Let's start with uh, avoiding the big one, I guess. (laughs) Ah, yeah, that's the biggest question, right? (laughs) Um, so here's the funny thing about uh, the big one and about uh, being included in big crashes. The running position among Talladega's top 30 spots with the lowest crash inclusion rate is first place. Oh, oh easy. Just be up front all day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it has been caught in less than 9% of large accidents dating all the way back to 2013. So pretty good. But the lead is incredibly hard to keep at Talladega. Uh, in races utilizing this specific arrow package, a lead has been retained by one driver for 20 consecutive laps just twice. And that is Ryan Blaney in 2020. He led 22 laps consecutively. And earlier this year, Denny Hamlin led 20 laps And that is it. Uh, That is as long as leads tend to last nowadays at Talladega. Uh, Part of that is competition. This is a drafting track, close proximity racing. Part of that is needing to conserve fuel. The leader could get around 4.4 miles per gallon while trailing cars. Those cars in the pack, they can get 5.2 to 5.4 miles per gallon. And that adds up. Uh, And lastly, everyone that is in that front pack, uh, the group of leaders, that vicinity, they want the top spot for the points. Yes, but namely for the safety. They recognize uh, this spot for what it is. Uh, The lead at Talladega is properly valued, I think. So when someone says that they want to control the race from the front and mitigate risk that way, 
I get it. I understand where a driver is coming from, but realistically, that is a very tall order because it's complicated. It is a difficult plan to execute, and that is why we see teams riding in the rear for a spell or two. Uh, that, that is why that makes sense for most of these guys. Uh, most of the drivers in this race, as we spoke of regarding Byron and Bowman, they need points and they somehow have to lead this race or be near the front. Um, but that lead pack will be crowded. And while that is a risk in itself to run there frequently, to the leader goes the safest path for however long it lasts. And that is, again, that is that is something that teams do value and I think that they properly value. Yes. Unfortunately, there's only one leader, though. So uh, is there uh, an opposite end of that chart, the uh, the most dangerous place to be? Because if you're not right out front, uh, is there safety in dropping to the back? And uh, should, should that be a proper strategy? Because we see it. I just don't know how much it works out. I don't know what the numbers say. Yeah, from, from about sixth place to 30th, it's bad. The The inclusion rates are high all across the board, and that's just the nature of business at Talladega. Uh, the, the front of the pack has been able to distance itself enough to build, I don't know, some kind of a protective cocoon around this. We, we really haven't seen this change too much since the move to this arrow package. It's it's sort of maintained. And then from 30th on back, uh, riding in the rear, or, or really just because as, as the field will dwindle down, if you can ride away from the gaggle, from the big pack, the most populated place with a lot of cars, that's going to be a safe place to be. And I mean, someone's going to have to be very smart about this. It's going to be interesting to see how these playoff drivers negotiate that because they're all going to be starting at the front of the field. Maybe they blow inspection on purpose and and start from the rear, but how they navigate this race will be interesting to watch. And something I, I just want to point out because I, I was on a co-host in Sirius XM earlier this week and we had Landon Castle on and uh, David, we have to remind people, this is the final uh, drafting track race of this car ever, right? I mean, this is the last time these cars need to be used. And to that, I, I war, I wonder about you know the Corey LaJoys of the world, Landon Castle being a Gaunt Brothers car, everybody who doesn't need to bring this car back with any sort uh, of wheels or uh, sheet metal on it. You know what I mean? These cars will never be used again. So if there was ever a time where a team, is, a small team is telling a driver, hey, we, we really need this car for later on in the season. That isn't there anymore. So for any of these big teams, right, these cars will, will be uh, scrap metal soon. Uh, whether it's right at the end at the checkered flag or later on in the season when they're cutting them up. But uh, I'm just positing that maybe that brings some sort of extra decision-making or aggression for some of these, uh, for some of these cars that don't have to come back and never have to be used again. With respect to Landon, I don't know how that's different than what's usual at Talladega, especially towards the end of a race, because clearly any regard for for taking care of your car for for most of these teams goes out the window. He had a similar answer. Yes, he said. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I think in general, you're just going to have to be smart about this. Um I mean, even let's take the 12 playoff drivers, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're all they're all going to start from the first six rows. Yep. 
sometimes you build a good strategy out of what you're handed. Like if you're, you know, placed in a bad situation, you do what you can to optimize whatever that is. But at Talladega, I wouldn't want a game plan decided for me. And I don't think teams really do that either. I, th- I think it, it, during the Daytona 500 after that big early crash, because we saw Denny Hamlin riding in the rear before that crash, so was Brad Keselowski. After that crash wiped out you know, nearly half of the field, they audibled and things changed, but that was the trigger point to do that. If there is no trigger point, I, I think you you have to maintain that same plan. But there are guys up in the front of the field, like Kevin Harvick, for instance, he's done the ride around the rear thing before. So that's that's why I want to talk about him here. I don't know why he would want to mix it up this early with so much risk around him, uh, especially given his delicate place around the cut line. And, and there are 12 playoff drivers. There's a good chance at least one of them does benefit from heavy attrition. And that is good enough reason, despite the initial track position they're given to bail on what they have been given out of the gate. So if you want to mitigate risk, if teams want to mitigate risk, then this simply is not your race for at least 75% of the contest. Mm. But if you want to control a race from the front, you know, all these playoff drivers will start from the inside of the, uh, the six for six rows. They've got that as, uh, uh, as good of initial shot as they can to do that. But for everybody across the field, there's going to come a point where if it's, you know, 25% of the race remaining, 10% of the race remaining, whenever they perceive as go time, where it picks up. And we saw that in the summer uh, Daytona race. You know, we didn't see Chris Buescher for the majority of the race. And then all of a sudden towards the end, he's cutting across two lanes doing some blocks that we found (laughs) highly questionable. So I I don't know if there was any kind of regard for his equipment then, but I think that's going to be largely the case. I would fully anticipate like Corey LaJoy goes for it. Oh yeah. Every race. So does, you know, so does Michael McDowell. So all these small teams, I don't know that that's changing. I don't know that that philosophy is any different. Um, I, I I would expect that we see what is a normal Talladega race for uh, for the modern day Cup Series, which is some heady stuff. I mean, we, we do see game plans work out, and we also uh, see some YOLO moments that lead to uh, some crashing that that doesn't. Uh, you know, doesn't get taken too highly afterwards. So I, I don't know. I, is it a, is it a different race? I, I, I can't imagine that it could be any more aggressive than it's been in the past. I know, especially in the playoffs and it's with, with them all starting in the first six rows. There, it always seems like there's that moment, you know, the race starts off clean and everybody's got their plan. And then there's, there's something, mm-hmm. whether it's just a, a block or what have you, you know, it's like, oh, right now, now I'm going to the back, right? There's always a moment that that switches up the strategy of the safety of the front. So just a matter of how quickly that happens. But uh, the, the only driver really with any sort of safety, if you will, quote unquote, uh, at least with his uh, playoff spot already secure for the round of eight is obviously Denny Hamlin. Um, what do you, and, and he's also a driver who quite capable of leading at the front of the field, controlling the race and winning a drafting track race, as we know from his history. So what do you think his strategy is? Because he's already locked in. Uh, He can absolutely contend for the win, get all the playoff points and pad his lead for the round of eight, what have you. I could also see him helping out other Toyotas if he wanted to. 
or uh, just hanging around in the back and waiting for his time to pounce because he is one of those rare drivers that has that ability. Uh, wh- what do you uh, suspect that the 11 car does? You just you just put a thought in my head. Denny Hamlin designated pusher. I didn't even consider, but he he could be like JGR could really use him well uh, to deploy as a as a pusher. I don't know if he's going to go for that though. <laughs> uh, I, I think he will try to control this race from the front at least early. Uh, that's what he said that he likes to do, but that was Daytona. Uh, I don't know that this would be any different. Is he even, is he on the pole? I mean, he might be, he might be really up there. So he's one of the few that can attempt to do this and have some success with it. But largely he's in a position where he can treat this race however he wants to treat it. It could be a lot of fun to watch him do his thing in that regard. But while there isn't an inherent points risk, to the day, uh, the crash inclusion rates treat him the same as they do anyone yeah. else. So there's still a need for some foresight and some sound decision making. But I, I mean, if if he wins this, I wouldn't be shocked uh, because he can he kind of dictate this day as as much as he wants to do it. Yeah, and especially when you talk about those YOLO moves, as long as he's not affecting other Toyotas. I mean, why not? <laughs> Get all the points you can, especially uh, as you look toward Phoenix. But, uh, David, the time has come to pick winners. As we know, that the 12 playoff drivers are starting in the first six rows, so they have a good start to this race. Who are you picking for the win? Uh, I'll, I'll just go first because I made my prediction weeks ago. Oh. Uh, my specific playoff prediction, as I told you going in a few weeks ago, was I think Kevin Harvick wins at Talladega. And all these weeks later, I still think he wins at Talladega. So he was fourth at the Daytona 500, fourth at Talladega earlier this year. He was running well at the second Daytona race before a late crash. It seems like with the Roval on the way, maybe this is his only path toward the round of eight. I don't know, but I, I think he gets it done. I think Kevin Harvick wins Talladega. How about yourself? Well, you're, you're really going for it, buddy. Good. For I you. am. I'm not going to switch. <laughs> uh, my pick is going to be Ryan Blaney. If you consider that uh, the last three Talladega winners were Blaney, Hamlin and Keselowski, the prevailing denominator is that they are three drivers capable enough to thwart about two lanes of traffic at the same time. That's not easy to do. We don't see that often. It's probably ill-advised. But Bellini is one of the three that that can, and he's given good cars. Uh, the Daytona car that he won with ranked third in median lap time for that race. The fastest car of that race belonged to Joey Logano. So Team Penske as a whole has a good drafting program. Uh, so Blaney, that's my pick to, uh, benefit most. All right. I like that. And now we go to our contrarian contender picks because, uh, look, some listeners have been giving me some crap on Twitter because my contrarians have been Hendrick cars the last two weeks, specifically playoff driver, William Byron, uh, not super contrarian. So David, I'll go out a little bit of a limb this week. I'll pick a non-playoff driver. I'm going to go with Austin Dillon as my contrarian pick. Uh, most points scored on drafting tracks so far this year. I, I just think if a non-playoff driver is going to win uh, in the playoffs, this would be the track to do it at, right? Maybe the Roval, but I'm going with Talladega. Uh, 
you know, there's so much on the line. These races get so crazy at the end with playoff drivers trying to get all they can. I don't know how much help a guy like Austin Dillon gets if, or if he's instructed to be a helper for a playoff, a Chevy playoff driver, but that's why it's a contrarian pick. I like Austin Dillon's skills at these tracks. He's obviously uh, quite good at them. And so uh, I'm going with Austin Dillon as my contrarian pick. Not to curse him, but I'm going to pick Ryan Priest as my contrarian. Alan, he has completed every lap of all five of his Talladega Cup Series starts and has never finished worse than 18th. Uh, He finished 14th in the spring race. But if I may be so bold, I will suggest that he underachieved that day. He had the sixth fastest car per his median lap. As we've discussed previously, speed does tend to matter on the drafting tracks, and he ranked seventh uh, in that category uh, across the three drafting track races this year, two Daytona, one Talladega. Uh, So if he can last as his uh, past considers that uh, he can, then yeah, I think he's uh, in it to win it. I love it. I love it. And hopefully the listeners too, we're we're branching out a little bit with our contrarian picks uh, for Talladega. But another good episode of Positive Regression, episode 122. Don't forget we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. This stuff helps spread the word about this podcast. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated, some of the comments and ratings you guys give us. Thank you so much. If you have any questions, we would love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod.com, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. Sometimes we make entire episodes based just on your questions because they are so good and smart. We appreciate them. David, you're always working hard. What you got this week? I will have my usual two articles this week for NBC Sports, including a Talladega race preview on Sunday morning that will be written from Talladega because I will be there. Oh, cool. I will be in the media center, in the garage, turning over trash cans, looking for dirt. So uh, if you'd like to follow along, I'm on Twitter at DavidSmithMA, or you can uh, hop on the email list, have all my articles emailed directly to you. Just shoot a note to motorsportsanalytics at gmail.com and I will get you situated. Well, now I am jealous because I love Talladega, especially in the fall. Uh, make sure you follow me on all the social channels at Alan Cavana on Twitter, Copa Cavana on Instagram, my Facebook page. Just got all my work up there. Make sure you watch on Thursday. Uh, the quick hits video from SpeedSport. Kind of, it's a menu. It sets up your weekend of racing and it goes well beyond NASCAR. I've learned a lot from it and doing it and writing it. I hope you guys get something out of it because there's just so much racing going on across America every weekend. So that helps uh, set it up. On Fridays, make sure you go to NASCAR.com and look at Fantasy Live. I know you have fantasy teams out there. It's the playoffs, uh, the driver allocations. Your number of starts are getting lower and lower. So myself and Amy Long try to help your fantasy team. I've been having a pretty good stretch in the playoffs so far. So I'm just not to plug myself, but make sure you watch that video. I've been doling out some good advice when it comes to fantasy strategy. And then just, yeah, uh, keep up with me uh, on Twitter and all the social channels. And I really appreciate that. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This has been episode 122 of Positive Regression. Enjoy the weekend at Talladega.
show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service without all the drama.